Like Benjamin said, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 15 this morning, Revelation 15. I had lunch with a pastor in uh, Washington, D.C. a few days ago, a friend at a free church down there, and he preached through the book of Revelation earlier this year, uh, and uh, he, he finished it much faster than, than we are. I promise you, we will finish the book of Revelation. Jesus will eventually come back. We're going to get there. Uh, but we're in Revelation 15 today, and this morning we're going to be dealing with uh, what is a, a, a difficult and oftentimes unpopular topic, and that's the wrath of God. That's one of the advantages of teaching book by book, verse by verse through the Bible is that we are forced to deal with things that God has revealed whether we like it or not. And so, while it's an advantage that we are, are forced to talk about it, I doubt that anybody is particularly excited to be talking about the wrath of God. At least we don't enter into a discussion about it gleefully. Now, knowing that we're going to be talking about the wrath of God probably lands on you in different ways depending on who you are and, and where you are in your life. You might be somebody who's, who's here with us or, or joining us online who is still considering the claims of Christianity. And the idea of the wrath of God is a roadblock to you. You might be somebody who has embraced Christ by faith and, and you believe in the wrath of God, but you're still wrestling with the reality of it. You may be a Christian who trusts what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God, but have trepidation in explaining it to your friends, family, co-workers. And I think what we're going to see in the, in the passage that we're in today has something to say to all of those things. So, we'll be, we'll, we're going to start in Revelation 15. We're going to go through the middle of chapter 16. And before we do, let's pray. Our God and Father, You have written what we have here in the Bible for our instruction, that we might know you, that we might come to eternal life, and eternal life is knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Lord, we can't hope to understand this without your help. And so, Lord, will you, by your Spirit, illumine our hearts that we might understand what you've written for our instruction. Help us, Lord, to submit to your word, which alone is truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation chapter 15, we're coming to the end of a, of a section of the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation is made up of these, primarily these four big visions that John has. Each one starts with John saying, and I was in the Spirit, and then he has this vision. And we're in the middle of the, or towards the end, rather, of the, the largest of those visions, the visions of these judgments of God. And so, we saw uh, the judgments of God first to seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then there's an interlude to talk about the, the people of God. And now, coming back, we're going to talk about that final set of seven judgments, the seven bowls. So, let's look at the beginning of chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 1, even though Tom covered it last week because, because that's really where this, this starts, and then I'm going to skip down and do verses 5 through 8. 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And then verse 5, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle and the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave the, the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. A few things to, to note uh, just in this. This is basically the introduction to these these bowl judgments because uh, the angels have these bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. A couple things to notice. In, in verse 1, notice that John says he saw another sign. John's been seeing signs throughout the book. Now, I want to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that because that's going to be important in a few minutes. Just remember, John said, I saw another sign. Notice too in verse 1, he says that he saw the last of the plagues. Right? He said, the seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is, is finished. And as we've been talking through the, the book of Revelation and trying to give you an idea of some of the, the, the way that the book is structured, we've suggested that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls might not actually be a, a sequential chronological uh, sequence but rather uh, recapitulating or, or retelling the same thing over and over again, the same judgments that God is pouring out on the world and all the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. But here, with the bowls, it appears that there is even more of a, of a focus on that which occurs immediately before the return of Christ. So maybe both retelling the same cycles of judgment from a different angle and specifically focusing on the, the intensification of those judgments at the end of the age. So just like there's tribulation in John's day, right? John says he's writing to those who are fellow partakers in the tribulation. So just like there's tribulation in John's day, but then also we see an, an intensification of that tribulation immediately before the return of Christ, so there's an intensification of the activity and severity of God's judgment immediately before the return of Christ. And that's what the, these bowls might especially be, be focused on, that intensified aspect of judgment immediately before the coming of Christ. And then notice, too, that the plagues are ultimately a description of of the wrath of God. We see in verse 1 that the seven angels have the seven plagues and that in those plagues the wrath of God is finished or accomplished. Also verse 7, when, the, when the, one of the four living creatures gives these, these golden bowls to the angels, they are bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. And so what happens as we get into chapter 16 and we see these bowls poured out, these are not just natural disasters. Uh, these are not God's loving fatherly correction. This is God's 
avenging wrath. And so, from heaven, the angels come with these bulls filled with the, the wrath of God. And let's look at chapter 16, beginning at chapter 16 briefly, and see what happens as these bowls are, are poured out. We see chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, that's the voice of God, saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So the first bowl is poured out, and it, and it results in these, these sores on those who, who had worshipped the beast, those whose allegiance was not to the God of heaven, but but to the beast. And this is very similar, and you're going to see this several times as we look at these bowls. It's very similar to the first trumpet. There's a lot of overlap in, in these judgments. Both the first trumpet and the first bowl are poured out on the earth. And actually, we see a lot of similarities between these and the plagues in the Exodus. And it very much is that John is, is, is seeing this in, in, the, in the imagery of the Exodus and the plagues that God poured out on Egypt. You can see the parallels in the situation. Just like God's people are oppressed in Egypt, and so God pours His wrath on Egypt, so God's people are being oppressed in the world, and God pours out His wrath on the world. And the second and the third bowls, I'll look at those together because they're very similar. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Again, both of these judgments are very, very similar to, to the trumpet judgments, the second and third trumpet judgments in which uh, the, the, the sea and then the drinking water uh, becomes undrinkable. The sea turns to blood. But in the second trumpet, it's a, it's a third of the sea that turns to blood and a third of the sea creatures that died. But here in, in this second bowl, it's the entirety of the ocean that's turned to blood and all of the sea creatures die. And in the third trumpet, it's a third of fresh waters that become undrinkable, become bitter. But here, the, the bowl is poured out into the rivers and streams, and they become like blood. It becomes undrinkable. It's all of it, not a third of it. And so you can see here, there's, there's an intensification. It's like it's the same judgment, but it's viewed from a more intensified, focused, total, final perspective. And then the fourth bowl, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Like the fourth trumpet, the fourth bowl affects the sun, affects the sun in sort of an, an opposite way. In the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. Here the sun's not darkened. Its, its heat is intensified so much that it, that it burns men. And it's not a third of the sun, it's the sun in its entirety. So again, you see this intensification of God's judgment. And then verse 10, the fifth bowl. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. 
and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And this is similar to the fourth trumpet, but again, where, where the fourth trumpet judgment, there was a, a third of the celestial lights that are darkened. Here, it's all darkness. The darkness is, is total, which again, very similar to the Exodus plague of darkness in which darkness covered the land of Egypt. But notice that, it, that it's only poured out on the, the kingdom of the beast. So like in Egypt, when the kingdom of Egypt was covered in darkness, but where the people of Israel were, it was, it was light. So here it's poured out only on, on the kingdom of the beast. And it's, it's more than just darkness. Right? When, when God told Moses that He was going to pour out darkness over the, the people of Egypt, He said it was going to be a darkness that may be felt. And here you see darkness poured out on the kingdom of the, the beast, those who oppose God. And it's not just darkness, but they nod their tongues because of the pain. This is the darkness that may be felt, that may cause physical pain as well. So as we look at those first five uh, bowl judgments, what we often want to do, in part to satisfy our own curiosity, I think, is to ask, well, when, where, and how will all these things take place, right? And people have speculated about this probably since it was written. And we still haven't figured it out. So I don't expect to this morning. But I think part of the reason why we haven't figured it out, part of the reason why we don't know, well, when, where, how exactly, what, what is this going to correspond to, is because I'm not sure that that's actually the point that we're supposed to take from this passage. So remember, John said in verse 1 of chapter 15 that he saw another sign. And that matters because it reminds us that we, we may not be, uh, be warranted to, to read these judgments looking for some kind of literal one-for-one correspondence or fulfillment. Remember, a, a sign is something that signifies something else. It doesn't signify something else that's, that's so entirely different that there's, that there's no correspondence. It may actually signify something that is, that is far worse than what we read here. But the question that we have to ask is, what do these visions signify? What are these judgments? Why are these judgments significant? What do they teach us? What is, what is communicated through them? And we don't have to guess at that because we get a sort of divine commentary on these judgments here in chapter 16. We get some after each of the third, fourth, and fifth bowls. And I think this divine commentary is that which contains the, the main point that we're to draw out of this passage, and that's this. The wrath of God establishes the justice of God. The wrath of God establishes the justice of God. The wrath of God, contrary to what, what popular opinion might be, is not about a fickle, moody deity simply taking pleasure and throwing lightning bolts at his unsuspecting and innocent creatures. No, the wrath of God is all about the justice of God. God has wrath because God is just. 
We see this in the passage in three ways. The wrath of God establishes the justice of God because in it, God avenges the injustice done to His people. God ensures that the, the punishment fits the crime. And God proves that those who receive it deserve it. God avenges the injustice done to His people. He ensures that the punishment fits the crime, and He proves that those who receive it deserve it. So let's look now. We're going to look at in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, and then verse 9 and verse 11. We'll see these. First, the wrath of God establishes the justice of God because in it God avenges the injustice done to His people. Look at me at chapter 16 and verse 5. This is after the third angel has poured out his bowl into the rivers and they've become blood. Then we get this, this divine commentary. And I heard the angel of the waters. The angel of the waters is it's kind of an odd description. I think it's the only place it ever occurs in the Bible. And it may just mean the angel who poured out this bowl onto the waters. I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. Right? The word righteous there, where, where the angel says, righteous are you, it's the same Greek word as just. So you can say, you are just who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. Right? Why is God just? Because He judged the fact that these, these who are receiving His wrath poured out the blood of His people. God is, God is worshipped as just because He is judging the injustice that has been done to His people. His wrath against injustice displays His justice. Then we see in verse 7, and I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous or just are your judgments. This reminds us of Revelation 6. One of the seals where the souls of the martyrs cry out from beneath the altar. What do they say? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And at that time in Revelation 6, they're told to rest a while longer. But here we effectively have the answer to their cry. Now is the time. God brings His vengeance on those who, who oppressed His people. And so the altar where the martyrs have been resting in heaven cries out, this time not in longing but in worship, echoing that worship of the angel. Yes, O Lord God Almighty, true and just, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, in all likelihood, I'd say most of us here, most of us listening online, don't have a problem with the idea of justice being done. I doubt that anybody wants to be described as, as an unjust person. Right? Now, we may have different conceptions of what is just and what is unjust, and those may have varying levels of correspondence to what God actually says is just and unjust, but I think we all desire to see justice done at least as, as we conceive of it. You can see this in, in the world today. There's no shortage of talk about that which is just and that which is unjust and doing justice and combating 
injustice. And so even the, the secular world, people want to see justice done. What's interesting, though, is that when we talk about God, we want God to be just because that's something that, that we value. That's something that we think about ourselves. But we don't want Him to have wrath. Right? We want God to be just. We want God to confront injustice, but we don't want God to be, to be wrathful. And, and this passage helps us with this because it, it reminds us that God is not some kind of petulant, uncontrolled, uh, hysterical deity who's just in a rage against people. That's more fitting for Zeus than the God of the Bible. Rather, wrath is the expression of God's perfect, holy, and loving character against that which opposes His will and tears down and distorts and destroys His good design for creation. And so, those who would, who would say, we want justice to be done, but I can't believe in a God who would have wrath, well, then you ultimately have a God who's not just. The sin and injustice goes undealt with. If you want a God without wrath, then you have a God who's not just, a God who's not good, and a God who's not God. If you want justice, ultimate justice to be done, then you want a God who has wrath against sin and injustice. Part of the problem that we have with that then is what God calls unjust and sinful are things that we like to do. That's the issue. If you could say, I could never believe in a God who would send anyone to hell, then you're effectively saying, I don't want evil to be punished. We would never say that even for human crimes. So the problem isn't really that we don't want there to be wrath against evil. The problem is often we just don't like what God calls evil. We want to be the judge of what is just and what is unjust. One more thing from from this section, just very briefly, there are some of you, some of you who are here, some of you who are watching, some who are listening, who have been the victims of grievous sin and injustice. And you know, you feel in your heart justice has not been done. And I want to remind you, as we, as we look at the parallels between what's happening here, what happens in the Exodus, when the Israelites are suffering at the hands of the oppressive Egyptians and they cry out to God, it says that God heard their cries and God saw and God knew. In the same way, you've cried out for justice. I want you to hear this. God sees. God knows. And there will be no miscarriage of justice with God. As the Lord lives, there will be perfect justice done. So first, the wrath of God establishes the justice of God because in it God avenges the injustice done to His people. Second, God ensures that the punishment fits the crime. Look with me at verse 
6, chapter 16 and verse 6. We'll start in verse 5. Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. Another common objection to the idea of the, the wrath of God is that it seems excessive. How could God punish something in infinite eternity for sins committed in finite time? We can't explore all the nuances to that question this morning, but look what it says here. What we can see is that those who, who poured out the blood of the saints and prophets have been given blood to drink. There's this proportionality, the suitability and appropriateness to the wrath of God. God's judgments are not excessive. As the angel says, giving this divine commentary, they deserve it. They're getting exactly what their sin has warranted according to divine justice. So Paul tells us in, in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. For our sin against God, we earn death, condemnation under the wrath of God. That is what we deserve. And if God were to lighten the sentence, He would not somehow be more loving or more merciful, he would actually be unjust, and he would fail to punish injustice, and that would actually be unloving. If we struggle with this concept, if we think that the, the punishment of God's judgment doesn't actually fit the, the crime, it may well be because we actually haven't understood the true nature of sin. Right? If we're, if we're upset by the verdict of a human court, sometimes it's because we think the, the guilty party has got, gone off scot-free or has not actually gotten what they deserved. We cry out, it doesn't seem fair. We think the punishment's too lax for the crime committed. Our conception of the seriousness of the crime affects how we think about what just punishment is. And so, if we think God's wrath against sin is excessive and injustice, it's likely because we don't know just how serious sin really is. It means we have a low view of sin and a low view of God against whom the sin is committed. But here we see that the angel, the martyrs glorified in heaven, see God's judgments, and they with, with glorified eyes can see and say that they are in fact true and righteous, just. God ensures that the punishment fits the crime. And then third, God's wrath establishes God's justice because in it God proves that those who are receiving it deserve it. Right? Sometimes we have a, a hard time thinking about something like the wrath of God because we think that the recipients of it are actually relatively innocent, that while someone conceivably might deserve God's wrath, they don't. Again, the divine commentary in verses 5 through 7 has already stated that those who are receiving God's wrath are those who deserve it. And then if we look after the fourth and the fifth bowls, we see a, a confirmation of that, right? As God's judgments intensify, as it becomes clear that He's judging sin, 
The effect ought to be that it brings men to their knees in repentance, and they recognize that I've sinned against God, and I must turn to Him and be saved, otherwise I will face this, this wrath. But what happens instead? Look at verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. What should have led them to repentance and fleeing to God for mercy leads them to blaspheme God and to dig their heels in. Same in verse 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Not only does this not lead them to repentance, it has entirely the opposite effect. It actually shows their hardness and their unrepentance. You might say the angels' uh, commentary saying they deserve it. We say that might sound harsh. Are you sure? Surely they see now the mistake that they've made, and surely now they'll turn to God, and that is not what happens. It reveals the hardness of their heart, and they know that God is doing it, and they know why God is doing it. It says they blaspheme the God of heaven who has the power over these plagues. They know it's God doing it, and yet they don't turn to Him. The, the, their knowledge is not the problem. It's not that they don't know enough to turn to God. Their problem is not their head. Their problem is their heart. They hate God. They don't want to turn to Him. Despite their experience of God's wrath and their knowledge that it, it is, in fact, brought about by God, they stubbornly refuse to repent. They're not ignorant and they're not innocent. The problem isn't their heads, it's their hearts. And in this, they simply follow in the footsteps of Pharaoh, right? As the plagues are poured out on Egypt, what happens with Pharaoh? Again and again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. This display of God's glorious power, which ought to have caused him to humble himself before God led him to dig his heels in. So here it is brought face to face with the wrath of God, which is a mere foretaste of the eternal condemnation they face. These, these people double down on their sinful rejection of God, blaspheming Him, refusing to give Him glory, and it confirms that they do indeed deserve what they're receiving. God's wrath is not poured out upon hapless innocence or even those who suddenly realize the wrong that they had done and now seek to turn to Him. There's no wrongful conviction here, no evidence that can be discovered years later that will show that these people were actually mistakenly condemned. God's judgment is just. They deserve it. So the wrath of God reveals the justice of God, showing that God is just because He does not allow injustice to go unpunished. The punishment He pours out is entirely and perfectly suited to the sin committed, and there are no wrongful convictions. Those upon whom the wrath of God falls are those who deserve it. 
Again, one of the reasons we can have a tough time with this doctrine is because we don't like what God calls unjust and sinful. And we don't think our sins are all that evil or all that serious. Perhaps most of all, we have a tough time because deep down, if we peel back uh, the, the, the layers of, uh, of, of numbing techniques that we use to, to, to walk through this world, deep down we know that we too deserve the wrath of God. And yet, we Christians do not fear the wrath of God, at least we shouldn't. How so? Would it not make God unjust if He did not punish our sins also? How is it that we who are also sinners need not fear the wrath of God? We find the answer as we turn our, our hearts and minds to the Lord's table. You should have received a communion packet on your way in. I invite you to take that out now. Uh, if you didn't, uh, maybe Daryl will grab. And if you don't have a communion packet, you can feel free to raise your hand and Daryl will get you a packet. I would remind you as we prepare to, to observe the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration reserved for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not you, we are glad that you're here. We want you to be here. We love you. We want to talk to you, but we'd ask that you would refrain from taking the Lord's Supper with us. As John's vision in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 15 and 16, is a sign of God's wrath, so the Lord's Supper is for us a sign of God's mercy. The bread and the cup are signs that point to the broken body and shed blood of Christ, signs that present to our senses the death of Christ. And although we have deserved God's wrath on account of our sin, we who are united to Christ by faith are no longer condemned to face it. Let's consider that briefly now be in Romans 3. There's a few places in the book of Romans that talk about the wrath of God. We read in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and ungodliness of people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, and that, that those who do such things deserve to die. We read that by our unrepentance, we are storing up wrath against ourselves when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. And no one escapes from this because in Romans 3, 23, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty of this. And yet then Paul goes on to say that despite this, people can be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How so if people are sinners? How is it that God can forgive that sin and still be just? It's through Christ Jesus, who in Romans 3.25, we read that God set forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received through faith. Propitiation means a wrath-bearing sacrifice. 
God gave Christ to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins, the wrath that was due to us, the wrath that will be poured out on the world as we've just read, the wrath, that wrath was poured out on the Lord Jesus on the cross. He bore it all. Why? Romans 3.26, God set Christ forth as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by His blood to be received through faith so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just because He punishes our sin in Christ. He accomplishes and displays His justice because His wrath of sin against sin was poured out on Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, God has justified you, not because of anything righteous which you have done, not because of any merit that is in you, not because He's merely chosen to forget your sins and pretend like they never happened, but because the wrath that was rightly due to your sins has been poured out on Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed on the cross in your place. And if that's not you this morning, then even now God invites you to find refuge from the wrath of the Lamb in the blood of the Lamb. Turn to Him and be saved, for it is only by Jesus that we are delivered from the wrath to come. And so for those who trust Jesus, we can confess with the Apostle John that God is not only faithful but also just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, for the one who has faith in Jesus, it would be unjust for God to punish your sins. This truth is expressed so beautifully in the words of, of the hymn, From Whence This Fear and Unbelief by Augustus Toplady. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost limit paid all that thy people owed. Nor will God's wrath my soul distress if sheltered in thy righteousness and covered by thy blood. If Christ my discharge has procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, God will not payment twice demand, first at my dying Savior's hand and then again at mine. Let's take a moment as we quiet our hearts before God and give Him glory and honor for the mercy He has shown us in His Son and the justice with which He acts in punishing our sin in Him. Lord, thank You that though we have deserved Your wrath, that You have turned to us and shown us grace and mercy through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for us, that, that You might be both just and the justifier of we who have faith in Jesus. Lord, strengthen us, nourish us by these 
symbols of Christ's death that we might be strengthened in our faith and that we might be so centered on on Christ that we know that though we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is the propitiation for our sins. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take the bread. The body of Christ was broken instead of yours to bear the wrath of God due to you so that you will never have to. Take and eat, remember, and believe. If you would take the cup. The blood of Christ was shed instead of yours to bear the wrath of God that is due to you so that you will never have to. Take and drink, remember and believe. Let's respond together now by worshiping the Lord for His grace to us in Christ. Let's stand and sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. And pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written.
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free because God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sin, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God be with you this week. You're dismissed.